Well, hey, good morning. My name's Ryan, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at New City, and I'm so glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible or you're going there on, on a mobile device, go to Genesis 37. We're going to camp out in the first 11 verses. We're in a series of standalone sermons, so you're going to hear a different message each week, uh, and then we'll jump back into our series in Acts pretty soon. But uh, Genesis 37, and it's kind of the beginning of the story uh, of a man named Joseph. We hear about his brothers, we hear a little bit more about his father, and we'll dig into the context there. But before we go there, I want to ask you a question. I'd love for you to wrestle with this today and think through it and process it, maybe throughout the week. This could actually, if you really engage it, it could take years. So best of luck to all of us, okay? Um, but what does it look like for you? What does it look like, even for me, I've had to ask myself this question many times over the course of my life, to overcome where you've come from. Any of us who have moved have been through this experience where it's a cathartic moment when you're leaving a home. Uh, I'd love for you just right now to maybe picture your childhood home or maybe if you were a military kid or your parents just liked to move around a lot, the real estate market was hot. Maybe you had like 20 different homes as a child, but think about that place the place where you were formed and how all of those experiences shaped you. Now, a house is just a bunch of walls. It's wood, it's mortar, there's drywall. But what happens inside a house is formative for each of us. What happens in the context that we live in, the place that we grow up in is formative for each of us. I'm the sentimental person in my family. I have two girls um, and then we have two sons that have hair. I've supplemented males in my life. Rory and Spieth are our dogs. So we only get boy dogs because I've got two women uh, in the home with me and it helps me just to have some reinforcements in the home. But I'm the sentimental one, okay? And so whenever there's anything sad or sappy on, the girls look at me and inevitably I'm probably crying. So when we just, we moved a couple of years ago out of our home, I was there wrapping things up and thinking about how our daughter had really grown up. This was the only house she had ever known. And I opened up Spotify and I started playing a country music song because that's what you do in moments like that, uh, right? You play a country music song. And so my good friend Miranda Lambert came on and she said, you know, they say you can't go home again, but I had just had to come back one last time. And uh, she said, she goes back to her home in the song and, and she talks about the house that built her. I wonder what the house that built you was like. And for most of us, there are lots of good things in our stories, but there's also a lot of hard things that we've had to deal with. There are many, many difficult situations, scenarios, relationships, um, incidents in life, and even the things that we saw that either happened around us or even that were perpetrated on us were all, all of us, all of us, all of us affected by the places that we come from, and all of us in a broken world, a good but broken world. I don't care how good your parents were, I don't care how great your family was. All of us have to be overcomers as we live a redeemed life of faith in Jesus. So what does it look like for you to overcome where you've come from? Well, if we look at the life of Joseph, Joseph is an overcomer. Thematically, if you study his life again and again and again, Joseph is in situations, and he is threatened by temptation to sin, uh, threats within, threats without. And over and over again, we watch Joseph overcome. It's incredible. 
He is one of the most resilient people in the scriptures that we could, we could talk about or think about or look at. Doesn't matter what it is, he overcomes. And early in his life, Joseph overcomes where he's come from. So let's look at the text together. And the first big idea that we'll look at, and, and it's complicated and it's nuanced and it's complex, and I'm not gonna solve this with any formulas for any of us this morning. This is really something that we have to wrestle with God about. But we overcome because of and in spite of where we come from. And this morning's not just about Joseph. It's also about Jacob. It's also about his brothers. And most importantly, it's about God. So let's look at the text together. Genesis 37, starting in verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Jacob is the father of Joseph. His grandfather was a man named Abraham. God gave him a message one night. He woke him up and said, listen, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you and through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham just started walking toward the land of Canaan, this land that he promised to Abraham and his descendants. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And Jacob, so he's a man of faith. They've lived a life of faith, but Jacob has for most of his life been a grappler. He wrestles with God when he comes out of the womb. He's holding on to Esau, his brother's heel. He has wanted control in his life throughout his story. And he hasn't trusted, he hasn't waited, he hasn't done things the right way. And in spite of that, God uses Jacob. He calls Jacob to a purpose and he's faithful in Jacob's life. And that's where we hit in Genesis 37, verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, AKA God is still faithful. Jacob in his story went to live with his father-in-law Laban. Uh, he went back there fleeing his brother and he met his wife. He fell in love with a girl named Rachel. He was deeply, deeply uh, in love with her and Laban tricked him and said, well, I'm gonna give you my oldest daughter first so you can marry uh, Leah. So he marries Leah and then serves Laban for a period of time and then he also marries uh, Rachel in this time period. So he has two wives and over time he has concubines and so his, this family line develops through him. He has sons and he goes with his family and his clan back to the land of Canaan. Verse two, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, that's a common formula in Genesis to introduce a new chapter, to tell us something important about what's going on. Genesis, um, in the Greek, means generations. In the Hebrew, it, they just take the first word of the book, and it talks about beginnings. It's really the origin story of where all of us come from. And Moses is writing Genesis to give us an understanding and orientation in a, in a confusing world of who God is, who we are, how we got here, what we're here for, and how the world has come to be the way it is. So Genesis 1, just we're going to fly through this. Genesis 1, God creates heaven and earth. Genesis 2 continues the story of creation. And as Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, everything is as it ought to be. But Genesis 3 then quickly happens. Adam and Eve fall into sin. They rebel against God. They walk away from God. And for the next nine chapters or eight chapters up to chapter 11, the world just comes undone. It's pretty bad. Everything is falling to pieces. And then Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And as he calls Abraham, he says, I'm gonna make a nation through you. And then we have this story of the patriarchs, uh, which we've been, if you've been studying Genesis up to this point, that's what you would have been reading. 
So these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So Joseph is a 17-year-old pasturing the flock with some of his brothers. Now, Jacob has a ton of livestock, and so there are many, 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 many things that have to be overseen to, to, to keep the family operation running. Joseph has been put in charge of his brothers. We'll talk about why in a minute and how we know this in a minute, but he's pasturing the flock with his brothers. He's 17 years old. Do you remember where you were when you were 17? 1997 for me. I was cruising in my mom's Mercury Villager. It was the 90s version of the Toyota Sienna. So it was like a cool mom minivan, but it still wasn't cool to me. Uh, I wore Abercrombie and Fitch Woods cologne. Um, and I wore a lot of Tommy Hilfiger because Tommy was really big at that point in life and it was cool to wear it. I did not understand what Joseph had to live through because I lived in a different culture. You lived in a different culture. We weren't given that kind of responsibility. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, even in the first century when Jesus was alive, boys were entrusted, girls were entrusted with a lot when they were a lot younger than we are. So Joseph's already working. We have to remember that as we read the story of Joseph, it's, it's easy for us to make a caricature of him, um, maybe because of stories we read as a child, or if you're a parent, stories you've read to your kids. Maybe if you're not a church person, you have a picture of what Joseph is like in your mind because you saw him in a Broadway musical as a flamboyant man who wears a multicolored coat, right? Or if you're an older sibling, you know he's the second youngest of all of his brothers. And at times, you could read in your own experiences that Joseph, being the youngest, always gets what he wants. And that's exactly what happened in your house. And so it just makes you all the more bitter about your own experience in life. But who is he? What's God really saying in the text? He's 17, he's pasturing the flock with his brothers, and it says, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So he comes to Jacob and he says, listen, your other sons weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. He, he tells on them. But why does he do that? Let's keep reading. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That's an important sentence in this narrative, in today's message. Jacob loved Joseph, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. There's a Hebrew word that's used there that's a very pointed particular word, ahava. So everybody, it's fun to say. So everybody, let's just say it together. Can you say it? Okay, can you do it one more time? That was kind of weak, okay? No, no offense, but ready? One, two, three. Okay, you can show off to your friends or in Bible study this week and and just bring that out as a word of knowledge for people. Uh, but, but he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Ahava, it's the same word in Genesis that's used to describe his relationship with his favorite wife, Rachel. He loved Rachel, but he didn't love Leah that way. Okay, so there's this, there's this disparity in the way that Jacob gives away his love and affection to his family members, and it has catastrophic results for some, and it's life-giving for others. It's just a reminder that in all of our stories, in all of our situations, things aren't always fair. Things aren't always as they ought to be. Jacob, as a father, is supposed to give that kind of love to all of his children, but he doesn't do it. 
and he made him a robe of many colors. Bad translation. What that really probably is articulating for us as Moses is writing is that Joseph has a cloak that goes probably down to his ankles and he has long sleeves with. It's a tunic that was given to a worker who was put in charge of other workers. So his brothers probably had short sleeve tunics that were cut above their knees. If you've been to another country, you know that cultural dress often shows people what your station is in life. So that's what's going on here. His brothers, his older brothers are working for him. This is not the cultural norm. It's a theme in Genesis that God breaks the norms and systems of a broken culture. This is just a picture of how he's subverting culture through his people. So his brothers are working for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So there's complexity here. There's a home environment that is not healthy at all. A couple of observations. Who you and I come from really, really matters. Who you and I come from really, really matters. We're reminded of this as we read Genesis. We're reminded of this as we're engaged in this narrative. Who you and I come from matters. As we're talking about what does it look like for me to overcome where I've come from, who we come from matters. Because your parents are in you. And their parents are in them. Nobody likes to think about the day that you were born. It's kind of a disgusting thing to think about. But when you were born, your life was given to you because two people's chromosomes came together to make you you. And with research that's happened over the last several decades, we can know a lot more about how our genetics influence who we are. They, they really shape a lot about us. They're not determinative, but they are influential in shaping us into the people that we are today. All of us. That's why over the last four days as I've watched TV, I've seen ads for 23andMe. I've seen ads for Ancestry.com. And for some of us, we've probably tried those services. I had the opportunity, because I, I Googled it, to go on 23andMe's website, and I was on their website, and I watched all these videos about how it works. It's pretty fascinating. If you want to find out your ancestral heritage and what's going on in your DNA, all you have to do is order a kit. They'll send it to your house. There's a little test tube. You... It's a very scientific process where they gather your genetic material. You just put a lot of mucus into it, right? It's, it's, it's fun to watch the video because they explain it. Now take the test tube out, open it up, and spit. Okay, and so, so this person just spits, in the, and you send it into them, and then they can tell you a lot about who you are and where you've come from. Well, you have descendants who are here and here, and they can trace it back with pretty good certainty and a, and a high degree of prob probability about a thousand years. And now that they know more, you can pay extra to find out certain proclivities or predispositions you might have in your health. So I read a sample report. It, it was really enlightening. It told this person that they had a 9% chance, greater chance than the average person in the population of being obese. And then it gives you tips on what to do based on your genetic findings. So their, their suggestion were, was, based on your 
genetic testing, we highly recommend for you to eat a diet rich in vegetables. So that's helpful, isn't it? I mean, that's what you wanna know. That's why you take these things, to find out more about yourself and, and how to be healthier. Eat more vegetables, it's great. So we should all go get 23andMe or Ancestry.com today. But, but who I come from matters. I don't, I don't know what your parents are like. It would be really interesting to sit down with each of you and hear your family story, hear what mom was like, hear what dad was like. But there's no doubt that you observe things in them that later as an adult just started to come out in you. And some of those things were because they were shaped into you through your environment, but some of them are just because they're coming out in your wiring and your dispositions based on who you are because you have mom and dad in you. So in overcoming where we come from, we have to understand that who I came from matters and where I came from shaped me. Where I came from shaped me. Now, Joseph's very interesting and his brothers are very interesting because as we look at them, it's a study of contrast. Joseph on the one hand is different. He comes to dad and gives him a report of his brothers. Why? Because he's a snitch? Maybe, but that's his job. And when we see Joseph in the book of Genesis, when we we study his life, Joseph always chooses to do, or, or the norm for him is to choose to do the right thing. There's something different about Joseph from his brothers. See, Joseph grew up most of his life in the land of Canaan. His brothers have lived both in Laban's household and in Canaan, and they've been shaped in a different way than he has. In Genesis chapter 34, uh, Moses writes the account of one of their sisters, Dinah. Now, Dinah is this, we're told, a beautiful woman, and she's walking with her family throughout the land of Canaan, and there's a Hittite prince named Shechem who sees Dinah, and he's overcome with this desire for her, and he violates her. He takes her, and he violates her, and he defiles her. And when he does that, in the same way, it's, this is, again, very, uh, it's a very clear picture of what Canaan was like. It's a very twisted place. He has to have her for his wife because he's in love with her. And so Shechem goes to his dad, Hamor, and he says, Dad, I've got to marry this woman. So they, they concoct a plan to talk to Jacob and his sons, and they say, listen, would you please let our men marry your women and your men marry our women? Can we intermarry with one another? What do we have to do to make that happen? And so Jacob and his sons talk, and they say to Hamor and to Shechem, we think we're gonna be okay with that, but here's the bottom line. If we do that, we want all of your men to take the sign of our covenant with our God upon themselves, which was circumcision, if you don't know what that was. And so Shechem wanted to marry Dinah so bad that he was like, absolutely, we'll all do it. And and all the guys in this Hivite town had no idea what their leader was signing them up for, okay? Um, That's another study in leadership, but they had no idea what was gonna happen to them the next day. And so at the same time, on, on a certain day, all of the men are circumcised. And three days later, it says they were starting to really feel the effects of said circumcision. And two of the sons of Jacob go into the town and they kill Shechem, they kill Hamor, and they take justice into their own hands. They plunder the town, they kill people, um, they pillage. And this is really telling at the end of that narrative of what the family dynamics like between Jacob, his sons, 
and we see what Joseph's living in. It says, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So, boys, you've done it again. You boys are a nuisance to me. I've watched you over and over and over fail. And you're just like these Canaanites. You're just like them. What have you done? But listen to their response back to dad. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? In other words, dad, where have you been? Where have you been? See, Reuben is 35 years old at the time that Joseph is 17 years old. And there are 10 other boys in the family that are older than Joseph. And they have been shaped by the story of their dad. Jacob, for much of his life, was not a man who had great faith in God. He was a man who had great faith in himself. He took every matter into his own hands and they watched their dad connive they watched their dad manipulate. They watched their dad cheat. They watched their dad lie. And they knew the character of what their dad was like, and they didn't trust him. And they had been shaped by their dad. They had been shaped by their story, born in a family of sinners. And they had also been shaped in the Canaanite culture. And so there's this complexity to what's going on in the family system. It was way more complex in some ways in the ancient Near East in, in the very early days of Genesis, but it's complex for us too. See, we have to overcome because of and in spite of where we've come from, and that's true for Joseph. So where I came from is shaping, and all of this is com way more complex than we're often comfortable with. A lot of North American Christianity is predicated on formulas, we like to go to church and we like to feel good. That's why most of the Christians who are on TV um, who preach God's word typically are more motivational. They're more on the motivational side. We like to feel good and we like to be given in a very self-help culture formulas that make everything work and somehow God's a part of that formula. But that is not reality. I'm sorry to tell you that, and if you were looking for that in church today and you were visiting, this may, you may be like, well, I don't think this church is for me. This is hard. This is complicated. I'm broken. My spouse is broken. My friends are broken. My kids are messed up. Uh, my parents were messed up. Great. What are we going to do? How are we going to solve this? And I think it should leave us with tension. There should be a lot of tension as we walk with Jesus in a broken world. We don't like tension. We avoid tension at all costs. That's why me bringing up you overcoming and me overcoming where we've come from, a lot of us are checked out. I'm not dealing with that. If you're a student in this room, if you're just in college or out of college, can I just plead with you not to wait to start to walk with Jesus and to really unpack the issues in your life until later on? Can I plead with you that overcoming where you've come from for me and for you and for all of us must begin at a young age and we have to be brutally honest about what that's meant for us? 
One of the greatest points of application, I could stop right here, but one of the greatest points of application for you and for me could be we need to get in pastoral counseling. And then maybe we need to go to the Barnabas Center or to get counseling from somebody else because we need help. Because most of these things on our own are insurmountable, but here's the good news. This story is not just a story. The Bible is not just a story about people who blow it. The Bible is a story, and the main character in the story of the Bible is God. So let's look at the next verses, and we'll see the good news. The good news is that ultimately we overcome because God does first. And I'll show you how we can see that in the next few verses. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. Joseph had a dream. This is really important. In Joseph's culture, dreaming was indicative of the fact that God was speaking, that there was a relationship that God was extending himself to Joseph in some way. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, as they should have, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? They already hated him, so he's not doing himself any favors. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse nine, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and he said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Ultimately, we overcome because God does first. There was something at play in the life of Joseph. The reason that he overcame at such a young age was because God was pursuing Joseph. This is one of the great mysteries of life. But none of us come to God because we found him. You didn't enter into a relationship with Jesus because you discovered Jesus. Maybe in your life that's how the circumstances played out, but the way that you came to faith in Jesus was because he was pursuing you. You and I, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, we've got no shot. We've got no chance, but God is a pursuing God. God is a faithful pursuer of the human heart, and he wants all of you, he wants all of me, body, mind, and soul. God made us for himself. And so what we see here, what's illustrated in this complicated family relationship is that God is at work, and he's a pursuing God, and he's pursuing Joseph. Why do his brothers hate him? I mean, what's at the root of their hatred of their brother? They're jealous. Why are they jealous? I think ultimately they're jealous whether they know it or not because Joseph has what they want. Joseph has God. He's walking with God. He knows God. He's being pursued by God. And his brothers look at the work of God in his life and it makes them angry because that's what they deep down in their souls long for because they were made for him. 
They were made for God. And so their reaction, their acting out is really a crying out of their souls for the one true and living God. That's what they want. So this is ultimately a story of God, of God's pursuit, God's initiative to redeem and reclaim the human heart for himself. Here's what's encouraging. When God has a plan, his grace always paves a path. Now, there's a bigger story being told here about this family. God's gonna take this line of Abraham, this line of Jacob, and he's going to make a nation out of them. And guess who the brothers are in the nation? They represent the 12 tribes of this nation. They play an important part, and his grace is pursuing them even in this moment. God's coming after the brothers just like he's coming after Joseph. They just don't see it. They'll see it later. So if we made this all about Joseph, for those of us who faith doesn't come easy for, this would be a really discouraging sermon. You'd be like, well, great. Well, I know for you it comes easy because you're a pastor, and I know for that guy it comes easy because, I mean, he seems really engaged with God, and he, he seems full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit, but, but you don't understand what it's like for me. But the point of this narrative isn't to point at other people and say, well, I wish I could be more like that person. I, I wish my life had turned out more like Joseph's life. The point of this narrative is to remember that there's a God who's pursuing you. And maybe your sin was darker. Maybe your rebellion longer. But he's still pursuing you. In Matthew chapter one, there's a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, right, our Savior, and which of the boys is listed in the genealogy? Not Joseph, Judah, who had some pretty unflattering things happen to him as we read about his life in the book of Genesis. So I wanna leave you with this encouraging word and then we'll let the Spirit do his work as we take communion. Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That he who began a good work of you in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We need to remember that. That God is pursuing all of us and it doesn't look the same for each of us. He's doing something different in each of our lives, but he's a pursuing God and the only way that we can overcome where we've come from is that if he first overcomes us, that he could be the king of our life, the king of our heart.